0: This is remote Ruby. Have you any remote ideas to the meaning of the word? Hey, what's up, Andrew? Yo, yo, Jason is out again. This week was a rough one for him. His yeah. wife was in the in the hospital. She's going home today, though, so everything is good. But that is not what you want to do right before they're about to have a baby. But everything is good, thankfully.
1: Yeah, wishing them the best, obviously. So. Yeah, Lots and prayers.
0: Oh, yes. So what is new with you this week?
1: Anything? To follow up on last week, I said that Colin Gilbert and I were trying to release a newsletter called Ruby Radar. And we did. <laughs> Actually, first time, first time I've fallen through ever,
0: possibly. You got rubyradar.dev, it looks like. Perfect.
1: Yeah, and the, that's, domain. the domain's a little funky, but I said on Remote Ruby that we were going to ship this. I was like, so we just started going, like, what's the fastest, most minimal thing? Avoiding the rabbit holes. Because I am like Peter Rabbit of the rabbit holes. (laughs) Like, like (laughs) I I fall down them so quickly, but I think Colin and I, we talk every week at this point and he's gotten good at, hey man, where are you going? (laughs) Reeling me back in. So we were able to ship that. It wasn't perfect by any means. It was definitely a test run. It'll get better over time. But if you're interested in being a part of it or helping out or anything, feel free to reach out because we'd love... Collaboration. That's one thing that we're going to kind of focus on. The Twitter is the Ruby radar because Ruby radar was apparently taken. I didn't realize that I didn't do enough research, obviously, <laughs> but yeah, it was good. So that is new. And I told you last week that I kind of cheated and I didn't feel amazing about why I was cheating, but I also just decided to do it anyway, where I had this old emailing list that I'd never used and I just used that list, sent it out and Only 10 unsubscribers, but like a hundred new subscribers. So that list now has almost 500 subscribers. That's Um, awesome.
0: That's really good.
1: Yeah. And the open rate was ridiculous. I know obviously the first one is going to be like that, but it was a really high open rate. So (laughs) we were pretty happy about it. And yesterday I saw someone mention a project or they tagged someone on Twitter about a project. And then the guy was like, he answered and he was like, by the way, how'd you hear about this? And they were like, oh, Ruby Radar. And I was like, hey,
0: whoa,
1: that's awesome. It's been fun.
0: Are you going to be able to because you're using MailChimp for it? Are you going to be able to use like their website stuff for, you know, like linking back to previous issues if someone like comes to it and was like, oh, cool. But I would love to see the last one or whatever. Is that going to be hard to do?
1: So that was one of those things that like we wanted to do, but wasn't MVP because MailChimp is weird. I imagine that we will not keep using MailChimp pretty unsatisfied with it, honestly, but it was like, for now that's a bike shed. Yeah. That's on the list. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, that's one that I always like when I go to Ruby weekly's website, Mm -hmm. it's nice to see the the last issue or whatever, pretty easily. And you don't have to wait when you subscribe, you like, You can look at one right away instead of waiting until next Thursday or whatever. Right. We have
1: that. So we used a... Just to like do it as quickly as possible, there's this thing called e-link. Yeah, it's called e-link. And what it is, it's basically... It's kind of like a bookmarking tool. But really, what it is, is you can save a bunch of bookmarks and then easily pop them into the newsletter. It auto-builds the newsletter for you. So you don't have mm. to do any layout and then that syncs to MailChimp. Yeah. So the web version of e-link or like the web version of the newsletter does exist on a domain, but it's, we can't put it on a custom domain, mm. which I why?
0: <laughs> they probably why have to configure Domain rules or something for that. And they just were like... Well, I could just, not like, find any domain rules for that. So I guess yeah. like the
1: option, we have the option of like, we could just, you know, do a redirect because I was trying to set up the MailChimp site, which the MailChimp site builder sucks. Not the point. It was killing me inside, but I set it up in Cloudflare. Something obviously wasn't right. And I was like, how do we move past this quickly? And I just set up a temporary redirect to the the MailChimp domain. And I was like, this is good for now. So more to come. As I said, we anyone yeah. interested, happy to take on contributors or people. If you have any great links, send them to us. RubyRadar.dev, right? RubyRadar.dev and the Ruby radar on Twitter. Oh, you're not that
0: Australian dating site on Twitter that's called no, I'm Dev. I'm not. <laughs> or Ruby Radar, rather. <laughs> uh that's funny. I was doing some lovely email work this week for the job board. I wanted to set up just, you know, a, an automated weekly email that goes out like Friday and says, Hey, here's all the jobs posted this week. Well, it's been a while since I did any CSS work in email. I forgot how bad it was because I was like, Oh, this will be easy. I'll just like, you know, inline the styles from Tailwind for Flexbox and whatever, just to lay it out really quickly. And then of course I send myself the actual email and the previews are just like rendering HTML. So it's not what Gmail will show you. So of course I get the email and I'm like, "Uh oh, none of this is going to work. So yeah, I went back to the drawing board a few times. I couldn't really get You know, the layout stuff to work very well, unless you go to tables, which seems ridiculous to you in 2021. So that was like, well, this is not good. And I went to go play with MJML, the little like it's kind of its own language for formatting emails from Mailjet, which is a really cool idea. But it didn't seem like it was super easy to set up in Rails. Like there's a node module you gotta run to transpile them or whatever. And so I gave up on that and just basically designed it in I think the Mailjet editor because I I've been using Mailjet for a while because they're really kind of the cheapest option for you know marketing and transactional emails and stuff. But yeah, I ended up just like <laughs> sent myself an email, designed one, then sent it to myself as the preview. You know, the preview of this email, and then I go to Gmail and I download it and I grab all the HTML out of there. And then put it into my Rails template. And I was like, this is easy enough. I'll be able to use the designer and then just replace those pieces for the links and logos and whatever dynamically. And it works, but I just can't believe how much HTML it takes to, you know, lay out an email still. And I get there's some security concerns of like, you don't wanna, you know, someone to be able to insert invisible content in there that you could click on accident or whatever, that would be bad if there's any dynamic content in there. So I understand the concerns, but it sure feels ridiculous still to, to write an email. So weird. Have you ever heard of Mazel? Sounds familiar.
1: I think it it's a framework for building HTML emails with Tailwind CSS built in with like email specific post-processing. Uh, uh, i yeah. used it before. It works How's it great. spelled? M-A-I-Z-Z-L-E dot com.
0: Got it. Yeah, this does look familiar. I did see this before.
1: Uh, yeah. I used it once and it worked great, so. Cool. So, do you know how this works to pull off? So, let me see if I can refresh my memory. So, it's basically,
0: like
1: a... you install it on your command line and then you run mazel new. And, or you can, I think it'll let you scaffold a project too as well. So it builds you a little thing. And then they have templates and stuff. And this little project that it creates for you, you mazel well new, and then you can like configure like JS plugins, like Post HTML, Prism, and stuff like that. And then you just, build your email. I think they have like an index page or something like that. And they also have like theming for your CSS. Really like once you run the generator, I think you'll get a much better idea. And then you should be able to like run build and it gives you all the HTML that you can just paste.
0: Oh, that sounds really handy and it will strip out all the unused CSS and everything. And yeah, this looks awesome. I'll have to try this out because it would certainly be a lot easier to, especially because you're writing emails and, Or writing your web stuff in Tailwind. So if you can use this to like scaffold that up real fast just to prototype your emails and then copy paste them into ERB or whatever, then yeah, this looks really handy. They have like examples
1: at the bottom. So like they are tables. They have cards and buttons and alerts and like stacks and yada. They are tables, but like they give you the code and you can still use the regular Tailwind classes and stuff. I tried it. Mm. Uh, It worked awesome. The only problem then is that you got to like style the tailwind. So if you already have like a style that you typically use, then you're good. Right. Yeah.
0: It's pretty funny (laughs) that they have grids, but the grids are like table with a row and two columns in it. And then you specify the widths there. That's hilarious. But I mean, it makes sense. And yeah this would be a million times easier than what I was doing, so I think uh that will have to be the thing that I try next because looks super handy, so that's pretty yeah. much what I was exactly looking for. I remember seeing this a long time ago, but I never tried it and couldn't remember the name, so that'll be on my to do list to play with next,
1: yeah, I imagine this is what we'll eventually we'll probably switch to as well because it works great and Also, we tested the email like in several browsers and hey was the only one that screwed up. And like we fixed some of the issues like with just inline code, but like it's still like one or two like layout things like snuck out. It looked okay. It looked fine. It was just like it could have looked better on hey. And I was Mm -hmm. just like, hey, why are you like this? It looks fine everywhere else.
0: Yeah, that's weird. I was going through, I think Campaign Monitor has a CSS email guide that's like, here's all the properties. You can look up display and, you know, flex and all those rules. And it will be like, yeah, it works in these two browsers out of like 20. And it kind of shows you like some of that stuff. Like, I believe there was some Flexbox stuff that worked on like Safari or whatever on iPhone, but it was like, you know, Gmail and everything else doesn't really support it. So you can't really go with that. And yeah, it's interesting to look through all that, but it is up to the email client to decide what they want to allow and what they don't. And pretty across the board, like very different. Stupid. And yeah. Stupid. Yeah. And I don't know of any good places to be like, to go to and be like, here's how you should do it conceptually and everything. But it looks right. like Maisel kind of does give you those guidelines, which is super handy. So mm-hmm. Sounds like a good solution to that problem. I wish we would have had this conversation a week ago because <laughs> you want to save me a couple of days. Hey, man,
1: <laughs> I have like a hundred Tailwind resources like saved in Raindrop. So, hey, man, you need some Tailwind stuff, You just <laughs> hit me up. So I think you were going to tell us about Request.js, this new yeah. Rails
0: thing. It is. It's not as exciting as you might expect. It is a brand new Rails library, but it's a JavaScript library too. Basically redo the XHR requests from the Rails UJS, I guess is the like library where, you know, you're used to calling like rails.ajax and you pass in your options and your callbacks and everything. And that will make the request for you and kind of do a couple little convenient things for you, especially with (laughs) XHR is not the nicest interface to work with to make a request. So Request.js is kind of the modern version of that because actually you'd be surprised that the Rails source code for all the JavaScript is still in CoffeeScript even today. So they're rewriting it in vanilla JavaScript and using fetch instead of XHR. So it's a lot cleaner. And... There's already been, I made mean, two PRs to it already that got merged. And so basically, there's like a request concept, and then it, the response is wrapped in its own object as well. So you can basically say, you know, create a new request that's a post to this URL, and then it will use fetch and a promise. So you can do async await, and your code doesn't have to be, you know, jumbled with callbacks like it used to be for success and all that. So it's a much easier to interact with in your JavaScript. And then one of the PRs that I did was on the responses, because this actually in the request has knowledge of TurboStream, which is nice. So that's not something that you know you would have with the old Rails Ajax, but this will say, you know, if you give us the the type that you're looking for from the server, the response type, and you say you want TurboStream. Then we will include the accept header for the TurboStream format. And then I just PR'd the feature to basically say, hey, if Turbo exists on the window and you got a TurboStream response, we'll go inject that into the HTML and execute those actions. So it all works super seamlessly now. And then that led to another one that was like the Turbo library... All the instructions are like, hey, you can just import this and then use it, but if you want to use that with iOS or Android, you need to set it on the window, like window.turbo. And this is a requirement now, require js to do that turbo stream magic, but it kind of pointed out as I was doing that like, why don't we just set it on the window automatically in turbo? Because we're going to need it for this And we're going to need it for iOS and Android support. So why don't we just do that out of the box? Or we have to go change all the instructions and say, like, import it this way specifically and assign it to the window. But why would we do that when we can just change the library and assign it ourselves and do it for you? So I'm almost done with that PR for Turbo. And hopefully that'll get merged soon. But, you know, it's nice to see those little things like simplifying your... Installation and setup and everything and just now it's a it should be a simple import of each one of these and you'll be good to go and you can use request.js today like there's not nothing holding you back from using that instead of rails ujs so anybody that wants to feel free the fetch and response classes may get renamed to or request and response may get renamed to fetch request and fetch response because Request and response or classes actually built into your browser. So it's kind of overriding those on accident. If you import them with that same name, it's not anything too complex. It's very similar to what you're already used to with rails.ajax, but it has some nice little additions and enhancements to it. And are you familiar with the www authenticate header? no. I, Maybe, I, but no. I had seen it before, but I didn't really know what it was for. And as I was poking through the source code on here, basically, if you return a 401 unauthorized on, you know, blog post slash edit, and you would, you know, tell the browser, hey, you can't go there. But if you include the www authenticate header, you can put a URL in there, and then request JS will actually redirect to that. And say, okay, you gave me the, you said it was unauthorized and you gave me the location to actually authenticate. So we'll just send you there and you can log in. So that's built in too, which is actually super handy. But I didn't know that was a feature or something you I, could do. I
1: didn't know that either. So according to Mozilla, the HTTP www authenticate response header defines the authentication method that should be used to gain access to a resource. The header is sent along with a 401 unauthorized response.
0: Interesting. Cool. Yeah, I wonder what this authentication type It doesn't super, you know, explain what basic bearer digest. So,
1: yeah, so the authentication, it's an authentication scheme. So, it's either basic, which is a base64 encoded credential, bearer, which is the bearer tokens for the OAuth, digest for MD5 hashing, HOBA, HTTP origin bound authentication, digital signature based, never heard of that, mutual, and then AWS S4 H max shop at 256. Never heard of some of these. So
0: it it almost sounds like, cause it says authentication type, but you know, those are your options, at least officially. It almost seems like they're just repurposing that header a bit and saying, just put the URL in there and we'll redirect to it. Cause they're not actually checking if it's like basic and then prompting you to like log in with basic auth or anything. So it, right. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of curious about that. So but it seems like it, it seems looks like, like it works the well. the flow
1: according to this network diagram is like I do a GET request for slash home from the client to the server, and the server responds with a 401 unauthorized with the WW authenticate basic realm equals localhost, and then the client would send another get for that home again, but this time it would send the authorization with like authorization basic and then your key and then the server would return to 100. So that's kind
0: of how your Hmm. flow would work. But where would you pause for the user to type in their credentials, I guess? Because that's basically what they're doing in the request.js is like, if it's unauthorized, then we're going to look at that header and find the value and send you to the right place to log in. Maybe that wasn't architected with that in mind originally or something. So a client that wants to authenticate itself with a server can
1: do so by including an authorization request header field with the credentials. Usually it is done by presenting a password prompt to the user and then issuing the request, including the correct authorization header.
0: Yeah. And that's like describing like that basic auth modal that pops up in the browser. But obviously like you don't normally want that in a real application. So it seems like they're just repurposing it a bit to be a bit more intuitive or more how you would expect. But this is actually kind of cool because if you did a, I guess if you did any request through this, even, you know, just to grab JSON or something and you weren't authorized, then it would take you to log in, which would be kind of (laughs) handy because there's a lot of those times where like you might have been logged out in a different browser or just you left the tab open and, you know, it's like, checking every five minutes to refresh something and you might get unauthorized at some point and there you go it just automatically redirects you to the login screen you wouldn't have to do any of that yourself yeah, yeah. most browsers
1: will display a login dialogue when the response is received allowing the user to enter a username and password this information is then used to retry the requests with the authorization request header
0: yeah and that wouldn't be exactly what you would do in rails for logging in so that makes sense that it's kind of an outdated, like more for using basic auth or something like that. Nice. It's a pretty handy feature. The I need to do a screencast on this, but have you ever written custom elements before in JavaScript and HTML? And,
1: like a I'm just, custom element is in like, I create a custom element like foo. And I instead of writing div, I just write foo. Yes.
0: But with JavaScript, you know, you can attach logic to that whenever well, that's, it
1: gets added that kind of become like at that point, you're kind of dipping into web component territory.
0: Correct. And that's basically what they are is custom elements. That is how all the TurboStream magic works. So the solution for the adding TurboStream support was basically, you know, I tried this library out and I've done this in the past with rails.ajax. But if you received HTML, that was a TurboStream tag, you would just insert it in the body of your document. And then the custom elements actually trigger the JavaScript when they are loaded. And so then they go process that and say, Hey, we're going to go make those updates on the page. So to add that support to request JS was as simple as like, you get that content back and we'll write it into the page. And then the JavaScript from turbo just takes over because it registered those custom elements. And then, They know how to execute themselves. Maybe there's a better name or wording for that. But (laughs) yeah. So they're able to like evaluate themselves, basically. Yes.
1: (laughs) There's a lot of controversy around web components in old JS land that I casually stalk because there's one like big thing with web components that most people that turns most people off. And I'm trying to remember what it is. It has to do with the JavaScript. I can't remember. Hold on. Let me see if I can find it.
0: If you figure that out. Yeah, that would be interesting because I know a lot of people are moving in that direction and that's kind of partially some of the magic that makes turbo easy to develop is, you know, they can register the custom elements and then it does not care one bit how those turbo stream tags end up on the page could be with your Ajax could be with anything. Action cable, you name it. And then they know how to run and evaluate those operations, which is super handy. Conceptually, it works perfectly here, but I'm sure that there's, once you get into more complex stuff, that there's a lot of little, you know, quirks and odds and ends. As, oh, I would say probably all of JavaScript feels like lots of weird odds and ends. So I don't want to talk about JavaScript. <laughs> I, w- I, one
1: part, I do know this, one part with web components is that each browser kind of supports them differently. Although they're pretty widely supported, but like Chromium-based browsers have an attached internals thing that will make your element act as a native element, including allowing you to like attach to nearby forms and stuff like that. But not hmm. all of them do. Hmm. Yeah. But there are some really cool like web component things out there like uh, shoelace. I think that's one that a lot of Rails people like, JS. I think. That one's pretty sick. WebCamos are super cool. It's hard to get into them, right? Because they're complicated and the space is new and a lot of people are doing a lot of different things. And there are starting to be some more standardization around some tools, but it's kind of like the Wild West. But they are really cool, especially the ones where you basically wrap up some really complicated UI feature, into just a web component that you can drop anywhere. So it, and the nice part is it doesn't matter what framework you use, like you, because they contain all of the logic inside of themselves. So you can literally just link to the JavaScript and that's it. And regardless of whether internally it uses like maybe React or something, it doesn't matter. I think it just gets compiled all down to JavaScript. But the thing that I've hit occasionally is that, I mean, depending on what you're doing, you know, that could be a heavy payload. So you kind of just got to be, it depends on what you're building for. Yeah. I could see that. It's super cool. Like GitHub has a bunch of them too, for things like tabs and things like that. So it's super cool that you can just like basically copy a CDN, paste it into your like head of your document and then use like these super cool web components. And I've seen some be super interesting, like ones that can like self update and things like they'll automatically fetch from like a URL and display the results inside. And so there's some really cool applications of it. It's just like hard.
0: Yeah, I can see that. And the real magic does feel like, you know, you can grab that element and ask, you know, is this switch component, is it checked or not? And, you know, treat them like they're normal objects or, you know, elements on the page. It's pretty cool, pretty cool concept. But yeah, I don't think I've ever dove into building one from scratch ever i've never played with that i've seen you know some of the turbo source code for that and some other examples here and there but it, it makes me want to go dig in and you know play with that and say you know let's go make a go rails <laughs> element and then like make it do stuff and and give it like certain features and whatever cuz the other cool thing too is like you can style them as well Which is neat. So, like, you know, you can put a switch tag on the page, but like, you don't have to. It it can kind of, I'm not sure how the CSS all works for that, for the nested, you know, internals of styling of that. But like in your HTML, you just have like a switch component, but there could be multiple things underneath that. So it's kind of, yeah,
1: it's pretty cool. It's like, I think it's all kind of based on the shadow DOM. If it's a good component library, if you're using a component library, a lot of them will have like the explanations of like how you modify the styling on them. I know HTML or it's lit HTML is very popular, especially I know Jared White's really into that. He's got a super cool web component for Bridgetown called Bridgetown Quick Search, where it wraps all of this searching logic into a web component that you can add to your site. And then you install this plugin and it... You just place the web component and it has like searching all built into it.
0: Hmm. That sounds so, awesome.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's super, super cool.
0: That is really cool. I'll have to poke around and, and check that out. Because yeah, the concept of all this is like really slick. And I know that lit element was what I heard a, a lot of people talking about. Yeah, like a lit, little while lit, ago lit HTML, lit it. element,
1: whatever it's yeah. called
0: yeah cuz i was talking with the the guy who made uh, vime js and it's a video player that's more modern if you've ever played with video js and stuff they feel pretty old and clunky and vime is like all custom elements and web component stuff and i believe he was refactoring it to use lit element for everything it's really nice to be able to like inside of his video player you could go and like add tags for the entire default UI, like one element, or you could add your individual elements and then build your own custom UI with just writing HTML tags, which is sweet. Right. That is not something I can imagine being able to do easily in video.js or something where it's like, here we're gonna generate all these elements and you can like hide them with CSS if you don't want to see them and whatever. It was kind of the opposite approach of here, you can start with nothing and add to it, or you can start with like all of the defaults and have the entire default UI. Seems like a great thing going forward. But again, like I haven't dove in enough to know where the warts are. Sounds like it's got some. Yeah. There's some
1: sticky points, but it's super cool. Especially like if you work on multiple apps, like this is perfect. Instead of like using and relying on like a JS framework to build like components in that you could then share. You can build these small little web components that you share. And I think the nice part is like the fact that it wraps all the JavaScript. And like, so, like, a good example is GitHub has a bunch of them. One of them is a time element. It basically formats a timestamp as a localized string that auto updates in the user's browser. So we'll put a link to that. But that one's a good example. This is literally something I was like talking about with a coworker the other day of like, could we take this timestamp and then convert it? to whatever the user's time zone is. Have you used the
0: local time gem from from basecamp? No, I haven't. That's exactly what it does. It'll write out like a time element and then it will go and update that automatically for you. If you use the the javascript only it's up to you to write the time element in the right format. But if you use the Rails gem, you get the JavaScript piece, of course, but the local time ago helper and stuff, which is super handy. It's just kind of my default these days of like, yeah, I'm just going to go make pretty much every timestamp as this. Cause then, you know, every 30 seconds or, you know, a minute or something, it will go in and refresh all of those on the page to show. This is from May 24th or it's from seven hours ago and all of those different formats that you might want. It's pretty handy. It's kind of the same concept, I guess, but I don't think it's a custom element, though. If you've been listening
1: to the show for a bit, then you know that Jason and Chris have a crush on Laravel and I basically battle JavaScript for fun. Regardless of what end of the stack and what language, they all have one thing in common, and that's Honey Badger. Stop wasting time configuring your tools and focus on shipping, knowing that no matter where you are, HoneyBadger has your back. Oh, and speaking of shipping, the HoneyBadger blog has been on fire recently. Seriously, and I don't say this lightly. Some of the best technical writing you're going to find all in one place. So go check that out. And while you're there, sign up for HoneyBadger. Let them know he sent you. Thank you so much to HoneyBadger for continuing to sponsor Remote Ruby and for not killing me for all the JavaScript errors I sent you this weekend. I looked it up and the first thing that came up was an article on dev.2 that says you probably don't need these gems. And one of them is that (laughs) it says that, I mean, it has a few reasons why, but the main one that sticks out to me is that it requires sprockets.
0: Mm, So if you're not using sprockets. That's not true though, because they have an NPM package. So Do they? Yeah. Maybe this is out of date. It sounds like it, or they didn't, they weren't aware of Mm. that. Because yeah, they've had an NPM package for a long time, but nice. Yeah, yeah, because it just does. Yeah, it just uses the the regular old time tag. So yeah, it's cool because, I mean, this gets me thinking about like I've been maintaining the Tailwind Stimulus components library, and we've got modals and all kinds of stuff. But honestly, like, (laughs) it would be so much nicer if I didn't have to say here's this giant dump of HTML that you have to go and like paste in for your modal. It would be much easier if it's like. Here's a modal tag and you can go customize these like CSS properties on it. But here's all the defaults. We've like pre-decided all of those for you and you can just modify as needed, hopefully with Tailwind or something. That would be cool. But you may have to do some like at apply nonsense or something in order yeah. to, do, to select the like nested things inside of the modal. But I it, think it uh, just gets tricky. Yeah, it, it is tricky. Very, I think a common pattern is to use
1: design tokens for this. So you have like design tokens specific to your component and then the user can then modify them versus modifying so much like the individual elements.
0: Interesting. If you have any article on design tokens, share that. Cause I don't think I'm familiar with that. I do. <laughs> cool. You know, I do. Yeah, I figured. So anything else that you've been up to this week, any Ruby stuff? So like, it's funny
1: that you brought up request JS because this week I've been struggling with remote JavaScript form crap. And mostly because I haven't done it in a long time. And also because I'm trying to like use some existing code that I don't super duper understand. And it's kind of old, but I just, just been losing my brains over some JavaScript, man. I'm just so, so pissed off about (laughs) these remote forms with Ajax and crap. Like it's driving me insane. So this library, like, Request.js looks like a great thing to maybe... I probably don't need it at this point. I'm too far along, but God, Are
0: I... Is is it. the existing stuff using, like, Rails UJS or anything? I think so. I think it's, like,
1: they've kind of wrapped it in, like, our own stuff. I think to, like, to make it easier to use across all the JavaScript. But, yeah, I think under the hood it uses
0: UJS. Gotcha. Yeah, actually, that brings up a point that I don't believe that Request.js supports server-rendered JavaScript anymore. So that is interesting. I believe uh, that it was that just kind of like, uh, from what I remember in this, and you can correct me if I'm wrong If you, if anybody finds this, but at least at the moment where it stands, the request happens, the response comes back and then it just returns the response and the only processing it will do is that turbo stream thing that i added so the response doesn't do anything until you you know tell it to do something and you can grab you know if it was an html response you can grab the html from it or json or otherwise it's just text and so i guess their intention is like look if you're going to do server side render javascript you're going to execute it yourself and be more explicit about it than Rails UJS, you know, auto handling the JavaScript from the server side or whatever. And with TurboStream stuff anymore, like I don't see much use for that. So I think that's, you know, a big nudge in the the direction of don't do that anymore. Just either write your own JSON processing for it or or use TurboStream stuff. And that probably will get you a lot of the way. And if it doesn't, then you've got cable ready and stuff. I
1: haven't seen anyone write JS server responses in a long time. I don't think I've ever written a JS ERB file.
0: I have written many, but with Turbo submitting forms and stuff, then I don't really need that anymore. Most of the time it was, oh, I don't know. Let's take an example of infinite-ish scroll. You would view a page and then there's like a load more button. Then you would click that and like, oftentimes I would have that render HTML inside of JavaScript that would say, hey, go append this to that div. And the only reason I would do it that way was because I didn't want to write any JavaScript and I didn't have to write any event listeners for that button click. So like, you could make that button click and have the JavaScript then trigger the Ajax request and then receive HTML back. And then your JavaScript needs to know on success... We'll go insert that on the page. I would just be lazy and I would say, use Rails UJS and expect a JavaScript response. And I could just move all that JavaScript there. And I didn't have to do any event listeners because it was done by UJS. But today with Turbo, you would just click that button and you would have a Turbo stream response that says, okay, go append that to this div and you're good to go. So I don't see for my use cases of things like that You know, they were like refreshing a form or little things when I would do it. It was always very minimal. Two or three lines of JavaScript was about it. And I think it's probably safe to say that, yeah, the the Hotwire stuff really replaces all that for me. And I don't need it anymore. But I would imagine there's some old apps that really took advantage of that and would be real hard to upgrade.
1: Yeah, our app isn't old. It's just big. And it would be hard to do that because we do some really cool, but also complicated stuff. I could probably use request.js, but I couldn't just like switch everything. Like it would be a pretty big undertaking. Yeah, you're right. Turbo does solve a lot of this, but like for the rest of us, we're like, damn it. Today I was losing my bananas because I know we've either talked about this or I've read stuff about this. Like I knew the solution was just somewhere on the tip of my brain and unaccessible but like I'm submitting a a form via Ajax and I want it to follow the redirects and it doesn't because rails wraps the entire request so that regardless of the redirects at the end of the day, it just returns a 200 or whatever back to the page. And I was like, (laughs) I'm just losing my brains because I think I finally (laughs) did. I I figured out what kind of needs to happen, but I thought there was a different way I could do it. And what I really just wanted to have happen is that when it received this type of response, it would just render the HTML. Like, I just wanted to force it to render the HTML instead of the format.json. And I was like, I swear there to God, there's a way to do this. And I just could not find it.
0: Mm, yeah, that's a good question. It's one where I'd probably have to see it, too. Yeah, to it's a, a complicated thing. Yeah, there's a lot of those. I'm excited, though, because it seems like the progress on this is going to help move Rails 7 along. So, you know, that should be, oh, I don't know. That was supposed to come out at RailsConf. But, you know, here we are. It's June. But I'm guessing it'll be out maybe later this year. Hopefully before Christmas, I know that's probably worst case scenario for them. But this is another thing I was poking around to, like the Rails scaffolds are not updated yet for using Hotwire. They're still on Turbolinks, even in master or main on GitHub for Rails. So that's another big change. They're gonna have to change the gem file. I saw Xavier tweeted a week or two ago about like what do you use binding IRB or byebug or pry, and he was I talking we about we talked like about this last the week default gems. So yeah, they're making progress on that stuff and poking around, and I think stuff's happening internally, but. It's exciting then it's on the way. I'm really wondering if
1: there's part of the reason is that they're waiting for Webpacker six because like the first beta of that came out months ago,
0: a long time ago, and actually right. the hilarious, frustrating pre that they released that doesn't match up with the alpha beta. It they were like a pre release before the beta, and they probably should have called it alpha or something instead of pre. And because it's all out of order, it's all all annoying. But yeah, I thought we were going to see that a while ago because they were making some changes quickly and then kind of halted. But there's been quite a bit of changes in Webpack land anyways. So the commands were getting moved around. I know it made a PR on one of those. And a lot of stuff has happened. And they did some major changes with No more post CSS, no more stimulus, no more any of these installers. And now it makes me a little frustrated because I'm like, I just wanted to run Rails like Webpacker install stimulus and I can't do it anymore. (laughs) Yeah. What I
1: imagine will happen is that because I've been kind of waiting for it to finalize because we could write a simple command line tool to do this with TTY or something like that or Thor if you're ancient, but... We could build a a small gem to like refacilitate that functionality. The problem is, and Webpacker 6 is going to be an upgrade that I don't imagine a ton of teams are going to be able to take on at first. But the problem with that is that it's a major speed improvement. I haven't tested it, but like you, it's a noticeable improvement, especially now that you're not loading all this extra crap. And like, it's specifically for the way that you're writing. It doesn't have all this other dependencies. We're not going to run into these issues where like post-CSS 7s in Webpacker, but you need post-CSS 8. That's all gone. So I think the changes were like needed. And I know there were other issues that they were addressing as well with them. And also the upgrade to Webpack 5 under Mm -hmm. the hood. So like, I think they're all great changes, but the upgrade path isn't the seamless upgrade path that I think a lot of Rails users are used to. It's going to be manual work. And if you're not familiar with Webpack under the hood at all, then you're going to be at a disadvantage. And if you don't read the instructions, read the instructions. Like they've gotten a lot better about the documentation on Webpacker about how to like add in this functionality, but it wasn't there in the very beginning. I wrote like a six part blog post about it on how to upgrade. And that still works. I think I tested it the other day. Although today, Julian Rubish mentioned that he was having an issue. So I may have to go back and try it again, but it's a fantastic upgrade that's not going to be easy for most people to take advantage of, unfortunately. yeah,
0: yeah, it was a lot of work when I upgraded Jumpstart pro to to webpacker six. mostly, yeah, because of those you know dependency changes, there's little things though, that are hilarious but small that are like, okay, the main app JavaScript folder is now entry points instead of packs, and I get it, but also. For compatibility' sake and stuff, it's just a pain, and it probably would be. I don't know. Maybe they'll do this and do in Webpacker five add a, you know, a warning or deprecation notice that says, "Hey, you are your source path is uh, app JavaScript packs, and you should change that before Webpacker six comes out, and so on." Like hopefully those things will be nice to nudge people along in the right path but it is not easy to do all that especially when they're like they're building a light wrapper around webpack and that changes constantly and tailwind's changed yeah. all these dependencies have changed and then they went down a little bit of a rabbit hole of we're going to build little wrappers to install stimulus and you know react and vue and all this and then all of a sudden like everybody wants their framework in there and The Rails core team is like, we don't want to maintain all these. Like, we can't. It's too much. Right. And it's not that helpful. So, I understand the move and all that of like, let's rein things back in, simplify it. And, you know, we'll just approach it with this philosophy instead because it got out of hand. It did. If I can't
1: change something in my application, like if I can't upgrade post CSS because of Webpacker, like that's a problem. And I know there are a lot more issues around that for a lot of other people. So, I mean, that's like this change had to happen. It's just unfortunate that it does have to happen. And I think a lot of this is going to push people more and more towards ES module-based solutions like Snowpack because, yeah, I mean, the fact that you have to bring your own loaders to Webpacker 6 is if you have never used Webpacker, like if you just try to upgrade Webpacker from 5.0 to 6.0, it's not going to work, right? And then you're going to be like WTF and have to figure out why. And then you got to learn about loaders, which essentially is that every single file extension on your, that you're trying to pull into your assets has to have a loader, which is an NPM package. Some of them are maintained by Webpack. Some of them are not. Some of them third party, which is another issue that I've seen in the Webpack world. And it's a pain, man. But the other issue with upgrading is that most people are on Webpack 4, because that's the one that gets installed when you run Rails new. As of or the last time I ran Rails new, it's still it was still that, and I a lot of people right. aren't even yeah. on five yet. But the upgrade from four to five is not like a big breaking. I don't know. You could just do it. Like I've never had any issue just upgrading mm-hmm. from four to five. But five to six is a major version change like, in the biggest sense of the word.
0: It looks like Webpacker five was the version added in the most recent Rails six app that I made. Okay, so so that
1: must be one of the most recent Rails versions made that change.
0: Yeah, somewhere in there. Because, yeah, I just spun up this app from scratch to play around with the request.js stuff. And it has 5.0 webpacker in there. I always forget if they do the tilde greater than on a 5.0, but not include the fixed version. Is that going to install 5.2? And whatever, or is it going to do just 5.0 point, whatever? I don't ever remember I don't that. know. I don't I know. I think my hunch is, and actually, let me pull that up in the gemfile.lock, and we'll get the answer there. So so
1: the tilde is approximately equivalent to version. Yes, but... And the, okay, up, so it, the little arrow up is compatible with version.
0: If you only specify two version numbers, like 5.0... And you do the, what'd you call it? What was the name for it? Uh, The tilde or the up? Yeah, the the tilde one.
1: The little tiny little up arrow thing.
0: (laughs) Because they don't use that, the up arrow, the caret. They use that in NPM, but they don't use it in in Bundler. But anyways, the the tilde version, it looks like if you only specify two digits, it'll upgrade the last one. So this has installed Webpacker 5.4.0 for me, even though the gem file said, tilde 5.0. So if you were to do tilde 5.0.0, I bet you would only do the very last number. Right. So that makes sense. I I always forget that for some reason.
1: Yeah, I do too. And there's also, it depends, like when you run yarn upgrade interactive, that tilde will also limit what you're able to like automatically bump.
0: Yeah. I don't ever do the interactive. I should do that sometime. I always oh, I tend always to it. just run yarn outdated and then I'm like, all right, just upgrade them all and we'll see what breaks.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's a yarn, uh, space upgrade dash interactive.
0: I think. Gotcha. Pretty nice. Cool. I'll have to try that. Well, yeah, I don't think I have anything else this week. We were heavy into JavaScript these uh, today and the last few days, it feels like. So maybe we'll get some more new, Rails news or into some Ruby stuff again next week. I've been like really, it's kind of fun to play around in JavaScript land, but then I no, get to the point where I'm like, yeah, this is terrible.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, there's also a bunch of stuff happening in Ruby, like the building, then there's some good stuff about like building a new JIT compiler inside of Ruby, And, you know, there's, I've been now that I've like actually collecting for like these newsletters and so just passively correct collecting like, there's a lot going on. A lot of great people are posting great stuff. I, another a new version of Ruby Format or Ruby FMT was released. Oh, cool. Uh, there's some changes to Rails 7, uh, Nested Encrypted Secrets. There's the new RFC for Nokogiri for pattern matching.
0: Huh. And
1: there's... Uh, what was the other one? Uh, I can't even find it now. Whatever. Some great... There's a bunch of new more Turbo stuff coming out. Or yeah. Turbo articles I've
0: been seeing. Yeah, it's good because what I didn't want to have happen was the Turbolinks situation of like, oh, here's this new paradigm and uh, everybody hates it and stops talking about it. And like Hotwire solves so many of those problems that it really does a good job. So, you know, I, th- I think what Joe Maslati is doing too on the iOS side is incredibly helpful because it drives more excitement of like, yeah, but you didn't know you could have done this all the way back in the Turbolinks days. But, you know, the compatibility and stuff with the browser and whatever wasn't great. And now it actually is. And it's just super cool to see, like, you know, you can do all this stuff on your phone now. It feels magical. There is some weirdness of, like, learning Swift right. in that side of things. But, you know, it's not too bad. If you've ever written a compiled language before, it's not the worst thing in the world.
1: All I'm going to say is that if you turn your web app into an actual app, please, there's some things like I have some apps on my phone that like, it's very obvious. They basically just implemented the web views and like they're buggy as hell. Sometimes (laughs) they don't work. They look like crap. Like the inputs are weird. Please make sure that's not crappy. Cause like, oh my God, there's nothing worse than you. It literally makes me not want to use them. Yep. The Um, other thing I was going to say is that now is the, if you are out there and you're like I'm looking for a job or I'm trying to like get my blog more popular writing about turbo right now is the way to do that cuz a lot of people are out
0: there thirsting for some turbo yeah and i've been surprised to see on the turbo issues a bunch of laravel people too they adopted I, I've turbo seen links that. and stuff and they're adopting hotwire and turbo and it is uh pretty sweet to see that yeah. and rank I don't, I forget how to pronounce his last name, the inertia guy. He's been, he was on our show. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He is awesome. And like what I love about what he's doing is like, he is, I think primarily in the Laravel world, like yeah. everything they're doing is Rails compatible too. So like they're bridging that gap between and the hot wire is too and turbo and all that. Like that is such a cool thing that I think two communities can support each other like that by building javascript and other like tangential related tools that can help both ecosystems it's a pretty cool situation to be in because i don't think we'll ever have overlaps like that with java or something (laughs) maybe with jruby but somebody asked me about jumpstart pro supporting jruby and it's like stuck at 2.5.9 or something in Ruby compatibility versions. So it's pretty old. There's been a lot of things that have changed since Ruby 2.5. So yeah, it was like something immediately. It was like several gems were like, yeah, 2.6 or higher. Of course. Why would you want anything lower than that? And I'm like, well, okay, guess there's your answer. No J (laughs) Ruby.
1: I wanted to mention that I heard an excellent podcast on the bike shed with Jonathan talking to Chris Toomey about inertia and listening to that podcast, even though he was on the show and we talked about it, listening to him talk about it on that podcast literally sold me on using the library. If I had to reach for something like this, it would definitely be inertia just yeah, because he's talked yeah. so much about how great the rail support is.
0: Yeah. And what's kind of magical about it is it doesn't need a lot of, you know, server side integration. It just needs the server to send over the props and what components you want, and that's it. You're like pretty good to go. So it really could work with anything, and they must have some good you know, Ruby and Rails developers helping out on that side of things. Because yeah, you, you in theory could use that with anything really easily. You'd have to build a little bit of, of support, I'm sure, on the server side, but that's to be expected, and it's a really cool approach. Because yeah, I'm with you. If I needed to build... Anything remotely like Slack or something that was very real time and very interactive, it seems perfect for that. But if I'm building something more like a GitHub or whatever, like you don't have as many interactive things. You have some drop downs and little things here and there. And those work really well for custom components and stuff. So, you know, I tend to build more stuff in that direction. But if I ever needed to, Inertia just seems perfect. And they have like support for all these different front-end libraries, yeah. which is like, it's yeah. so cool.
1: They talk about that a lot in the podcast that we will link. So cool.
0: Well, all righty. Well, I guess we will be back next week, hopefully with Jason here, Hopefully, um, but maybe not. He might be uh, at the hospital with his new newborn. So that'll be exciting. But yeah, I guess I will be waiting on you for the next Ruby Radar to come yes. out. Well, do you have Ruby, a day of waiting that?
1: Yes, it week? comes out. It comes out on Sunday. Sunday, Okay, cool. We were talking about it and Colin really liked that idea and the explanations that he gave. I was like, oh, that's a really good explanations. You know, no one wants to get emails on Monday. On Friday, no one wants to read emails. And then we were talking about during the, he, he was like, isn't it, wouldn't it just be cool that like Sunday morning, Sunday is like, you know, most people's like chill day. Yep. Um, Saturday, yeah. Saturday, like you do stuff. Sunday, you kind of chill out and kind of prep for the next work week. And he's like, wouldn't it be great if like, part of that prepping for the next work week is seeing like all this stuff happening in Ruby that you can then maybe take back and implement during the week or check out. And it, we're trying to make it very snack-sized, very quick, It's like the quick. fun-sized candy. There's nothing
0: fun about less candy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's overwhelming to open some emails that are just like, it's like a million links and you have no idea what to focus on. So right. we approach, we're like, we have two articles from a bunch of categories. So like maybe two written articles and then two podcasts and two meetups and two YouTube videos or something like that. And like two job links or something.
0: Cause that is what I want is I don't want to see every single article posted this past week. There's too many, but I want like the top five. That's it. The most interesting five or whatever, you know, and those can be whatever it is like the, You know, just quality over quantity makes a big difference there. It's funny you mentioned the Sunday makes perfect sense for that because I was just talking with somebody about sending out emails for the job board and what day of week made the most sense for that. And we were like, we could do Monday because you dread coming to work. And you're like, oh, here's (laughs) some other jobs I could apply to. Or we could do Friday because you just had a hell of a work week and you hate your job and you're like, can't wait to get out of there. And we can just sneak in and be like, hey, here's some other opportunities.
1: I thought that was funny. (laughs) My two cents would be Monday because if you're looking for a job, like you may not be looking over the weekend, but like Monday morning, you sit down to start applying again. Get that email first thing in the morning. That'd be awesome.
0: Yeah, we we did a little poll he ran and it looked like it was fairly close. 41% Monday and 58% on Friday. And then 1.2% for other. So hmm, it was pretty pretty split there. And I bet you it doesn't really matter which one you go. Right. But if you stick to the week where the people are really frustrated at their job and send it during that time, you're probably going to get pretty good opens, I would imagine. <laughs> yep. All right. I need to run. Time All to right. go back and play JavaScript. Sounds good. We'll catch you next week. Peace.